0: It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L. Diazobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Today, we have very special guests. Very special to me in more ways than you can imagine. This young man I met many, many years ago, and over the years, we have fostered a great relationship uh, he's my confidant. He'll get a chance to share his story today. And I've been waiting for this for quite some time myself. I got here, former LSU professor, Dr. Thomas Durant. Welcome to Count Time, Doc.
1: Thank you. I was about to say Lyman, but but uh, your transition name is uh, L.D. Ozobra. That's right. Thank you, Brother L.D. Ozobra. And you have a... And I have a a special name too, other than my plantation name, which was Thomas James Durant Jr. And that name is Kwame O'Reilly Diakwa. I need to explain that to you. In the country of Ghana, they have a special name. And according to the day of the week that I was born on. So for me, my first name would be Kwame. Kwame. I was born on a Tuesday. And O'Reilly was given to me by a family in Kampala, Uganda. And they said, I look like the Motoro people. And the Motoro people represent a, a large ethnic or tribal group in Uganda. And I asked them, well, uh, what does O'Reilly mean? And they said, O'Reilly means the rainbow, the strength, the brilliancy, and the color, the rainbow.
0: Hmm, that's beautiful.
1: Now, Diakwa was the chief of a village in Ghana. And we visited there in 1995, and he gave me the name of Diakwa. The chief did? Yeah. Chief of the I'm village. an
0: o- official. The chief of the village gave you his uh, name? Yes. Uh.
1: And that's an honor name of their ancestors of the village of Diakwa. So I found a, a, a new self-revelation in Ghana. I had to go all the way to Ghana to really find out who I was from an African perspective. From an American perspective, my name is just an identity as part of my family. But in Ghana, your name is your identity that reflects part of your culture and your personality. So what people see in you and your talents and gifts that you have becomes an expression of who you are. And this is how they come up with your name. So I'm I'm proud to say uh, Brother LDS <laughs> over, I know your name means light. That's right. Right. <laughs> like, like. and, um, and so my name means strength of the rainbow. Born on a Tuesday. Born on a Tuesday. <laughs> and also the honor of the village of Diaqua because apparently I have some chiefdom traits, you know. And leadership. And maybe they could see yeah, me leadership, in leadership yes. in Diaqua so you ask people well who am i who do you say you are that's what's important that's what's important people can call you something by your official name but do they really know who you are and do you really know who you are because that's most important my mother got to the fifth grade my father got to the 10th grade which was as far as they were going at the time so he it was it was really a high school graduate which was rare at the time but they wanted their children to be educated because they thought that education sort of was the key to success god first education second and hard way third (laughs) those were the keys to success but now god You know, nobody can deny you access to God. Uh, Even though our people were enslaved and, and had struggled through hard times, our ancestors were enslaved. But that's one thing about slavery. It couldn't kill the spirit. So you can't deny slaves access to God. That was a good thing. We always had access to God. Education, we didn't have as much access to it.
0: Okay, but, 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 but coming in a, coming in an environment where your mother, your daddy, uh, they went as far as they can go in school, your grandparents, they was all farmers. So what inspired you to say, I want to be... I mean, were you thinking about being a college professor? What, what were you thinking about? What, what motivated you to go and, and further your education?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, we were inspired by our parents. That's key. If you do not have parents who can nurture and inspire and teach their children, you're lost before you get out into the, the real world. And so we were blessed to have parents who looked out for the welfare of their children. Now educated, all seven of the children, all seven of us finished high school, five or seven went to college, four got master's degrees and one got a PhD degree, out of a family but the father got a 10th grade education and mother got a 5th grade education. So you tell me, how did that happen?
0: But yeah. the challenge was for you too, is that you end up teaching at a school that wouldn't even educate you.
1: Yes. Well, let me tell you uh, what happened. Our parents believed so much in education that they felt that that, that was our way out and way up. But education. Is not the first priority as I mentioned uh, God was number one now when you say God people say oh they're going back to religion you know black folks are going back to religion and how did that help them you you have to explain to people who God is and what you believe about God because otherwise you know uh, you lose them in this kind of ecclesiastical argument that there has no basis for how you get from point a to point b and most people say well i depend on god but they can't tell you how they get got from point a to point b and that's what our our parents did they manifested god in their lives so you know how you got from point a to point b first of all god believes in love god is love so if you don't love your children who's gonna love them Mm. if you don't take care of your children who's gonna take care of them that's what God is okay God is wisdom you have the wisdom and the knowledge to understand so that you can direct the path for your children if you don't have the God-given wisdom how can you direct your actions and how can you direct your children you know that's a a famous scripture that I like to quote the Proverbs 29 and 18 that says uh, without a vision the people perish and I'll substitute the word Wisdom for vision. Without wisdom the people perish and so my parents had Had godly love they had godly wisdom and they had godly work. Now now some people may say well what that has to do with it? Yeah, God believes in hard work You don't believe in 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 hard work. You, you You can't believe in God because God helps those who help themselves and that's why you have to understand that you can pray all you want to go to church or or believe whatever religion that you want to but if you don't ever act out your faith you're not going to get anywhere because you have already been given what you need to survive when you come here in this world and it has to be nurtured by your parents so most of the time that people Uh, or saying what they need they already have the resources to do it but it hasn't materialized in their life because they don't understand how to manifest if you're asking god to do something for you that you already he's already given you the capacity to do it for yourself so i'm telling you how i grew up And, and, and the other thing is that our parents taught us that we were no more or no less than anybody else black, white, yellow, green, blue, purple. So we didn't, we came up knowing that other people had more than we did, but we never felt that we were inferior to anybody. And that's key to advancing yourself in in society. Yes, there were roadblocks and you couldn't go to the white school, but that didn't keep you from striving to to go as far as you could in your own school.
0: And, and really, How important was that anyway? Because you couldn't go to school with other people.
1: Well, equality is something that you're never going to reach if other people are able to make the rules. Remember that. Equality is something that you're never going to reach as long as other people make the rules. So that that was the problem all along. Other people were making the rules and setting the conditions and that prevented... Uh, excluded blacks from moving from one place to the other one. And and then even if you move all of the obstacles out of the way on one side, you still have other obstacles that you still have to to, um, deal with. So anyway, the other part of this is that, and this is part of my motto, is be prepared. You have to be prepared. You can't control all of the conditions in society and the only person that you have more control over than anybody else is yourself. So if you prepare yourself, whether you break the door down or somebody else breaks the door down or it opens miraculously before you, you'll be able to walk in. And that's basically what happened to me because our parents prepared us as if the door was already open. Hmm, that's probably So when the door came open, we had the preparation to go where we could. Now mm-hmm. still there are obstacles, you know, just because the doors open doesn't mean that you're going to be able to go through. But, oppurt- but
0: opportunity uh, have to meet, when preparation meet opportunity.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what
0: you're saying. That uh, that's what you're I'm saying. You was always
1: prepared for the opportunity. We're always prepared because we God first, and, and, and we prepared with the education, we prepared with hard work. and. If, you have to, if I had to add anything else to it, it would be service to your family and community. We all had to do projects in the community to help other folks. So that's what I took with me from Mansfield Desoto Parish Training School and went out into the war to seek my fortune. So uh, when I got ready to come to, back to Louisiana and come to LSU, I thought I was superior to LSU. And <laughs> uh, you said, man, that's funny. <laughs> you thought I was a step down, huh? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, or to come back here and then live under the conditions that, because you know, you know you're know, you from Louisiana, so you know where the conditions are here. Uh, many people moved out of Louisiana to seek their fortune to other places. So why would you want to come back to a place that kept you down or, or at least didn't provide as many opportunities as you could have, why would you want to come back? I came back because I had a, I was a new person. I wasn't the same as when I left. And that's what, you know. I tell people, you know, you go away, prepare yourself, but if you want to come back, you come back where you can call the shots. You can select what you want to do. And I'm not being arrogant, not being boastful or braggadocious, but I'm just saying this is the way it works. So when I came back to, to Louisiana, I felt, and, and they were recruiting me at LSU, I feel like I was superior to anybody there. No. B- because I had not only equipped myself, but I had done it in such a way in spite of all of the obstacles that could have prevented me from doing it. That your state and and community put in your way. That's right. So I'm a stronger person because I have overcome, uh, uh, and and I don't mean that I did it by myself, I'm talking about with my family, uh, my community, the people who, my mentors, uh, people I met along the way at Gremlin State University, Tuskegee, and and the other places that I, I went through had prepared me to come back to louisiana so i so I, I i had a feeling of that I was eminently qualified if not superior to anybody at lSU or even in louisiana it didn't matter no that color stuff. it didn't matter no that it didn't of matter because you knew what was in you I knew what was in me you, in and in, I, in the d gravel state university at the Grambling State University, and you went to the Tuskegee University, University. and the University of Wisconsin. So that was the first opportunity to go to a majority white school out of the South and Uh, 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 come back to Louisiana. Doc, let's let's go
0: back since you're talking about this situation. You end up being a professor at LSU, but as a backstory to. How you end up at LSU, but also when you got ready to go to college, you could not attend LSU at that time, right? That's correct. So LS what? So tell tell a story. What happened? How you end up somewhere? Yeah. Where did you end up going to school at?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I grew up in a small town called Mansfield, Louisiana, in northwest Louisiana, uh, Desoto Parish. It's a rural parish. I grew up on a I I I was born on a farm in the rural hinterlands of DeSoto, and when I was uh, about two or three years old, we moved to the town of Mansfield, which is a small town that had about two or three thousand people, maybe uh, half of those were black people. I grew up on the east side of Mansfield, which is called the Colored community at that time, and uh, the white folks lived on the west side, the black folks lived on the east side. A railroad track ran, ran right down through the center of town, so Mansfield was segregated in terms of all of the major institutions, you know, schools, um, jobs, uh, everything was segregated. But, you know, the people tend to get along pretty well because they recognize the, the laws and the informal customs of that area. In other words, as long as you stay in your place. As long as you stay in your place, yeah, you know, you didn't have too much problem. And and so uh, I grew up in a family, and uh, at the time we, there were only five of us. Um, Four girls, and I was the first boy to be born. I was born April ninth, nineteen forty-one, and and so you can know what life was like 1941. in nineteen forty-one. And when I got school age, which was nineteen forty-seven, I went to the Desoto Parish Training School, which was right uh, across the street from my house. Now that was. Not by accident. Your 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 family purchased a house. My, my family built a house. Built a house. Right across the streets from the school, because uh, they wanted that children to have access to a school, even though it was segregated. But they wanted that children to have uh, access to a school. So I don't I don't know what busing is like because I never was bused. Because my parents thought of that, they built that house right across the street from the school, and that that cut out the need for any busing. no transportation I, at all. I, we didn't need to be bused. All of the twelve years who attended the solar Parish training school, I never rode a bus. So that that school was from one to twelve, you see. It was from one to twelve. One to a, to eighth grade on one side of the campus, and nine to twelve on the other side of campus, but all on the same physical location. All of of the children in my family attended the Soda Parish Training School. Uh, from six hundred Howard Street, right, could walk to school every day. The same school. And and as I said, that was not by accident. It was done it was by purpose because
0: but how big was the school? How many, how many children attended the school that
1: you were talking uh, about to? The Soda Parish Training School w- was uh, had about four or five hundred students. It was the yeah, largest yeah. school in the Soda Parish. Mm-hmm. And they bused students from the rural areas into the Soda Parish in the high school. There was only one high school in the Soda Parish and that was the Soda Parish Training School for Blacks. They had Mansfield. High school for whites so and and that was similar to all other parishes in Louisiana they only had one high school for black and before that they didn't have any high school for black uh, schools were started in their churches and they had private schools but when public schools came along uh, they had only one black public high school for blacks in the parish same thing you go like in uh uh Alexandria Peabody, Cato, uh Alexandria and Rapids Parish, uh, Peabody was the only school they had for a wife or high school for black. Uh Threeport Booger Tea, Washington was, was Webster that? Parish, uh in Minden, Webster High School. And, and and it was the same way all over. And so the the uh, the the elementary schools were located out in the country but but when you got ready to go to high school you had to go to the high school in the the capital city for that parish. And even in Ban Rouge, McKinley High School was the only high school for blacks in the whole at one city. time in in the whole parish. Yeah pa- paris. oh, East Ban Rouge Parish, yeah. Yeah. They came to Ban Rouge. You go back far enough, and you read the history, you find out. So all of uh, the, the children in my family went to the Soda Parish training school. I, I know that so when I see kids now uh, dropping out of school uh, uh, and, and although they may have some challenges, uh, you tell me that uh, they can't make it even with the challenges that they have now. When, and, and look what uh, my parents did, and even, I mean, that was common there during the time that I grew up in my community. So if it could be done then, it can be done now. Uh, but that's a whole new topic. But, but, the challenges were different. If you know who you are, then you can have the security of talking to anybody, Anywhere, any place, because you know who you are. And I think that's really the the first step of human preservation is to know who you are. So if that's the first step, you'd already jumped way into the subject matter, <laughs> right?
0: If That's the first step, that's one of the greatest dilemmas in our community.
1: Look, that's one of the greatest dilemmas, not only in our community, but in our country because most Americans today struggle with knowing who they are. I don't care uh, if they are uh, white, uh, black, Hispanic, Asian, or whatever. They struggle with that question uh, who are you? Now there are different reasons why we struggle with that. The different reasons for African Americans is because we have lost our identity over centuries of social and economic change and turmoil, including slavery. So we lost our identity. It used to be that we responded to what people call us. So if we are Africans, are we uh, Negro, are we colored, are we African-Americans? Or are we black?
0: <laughs> got a whole kind of terminology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and, so.
1: And, and, and then, if you select one of those, then you tell me what that means to you. <laughs> uh-huh. was, yeah. So you get you got some. They, that, yeah. that's the
0: options that other people gave you. That's right. So are those options <laughs> beneficial for you
1: anyway? That's right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, if, if I were to say that I'm a black man, th- th- That really means nothing to me because that does not describe my identity. So, uh, even for that matter, uh, African-American, that that doesn't really tell you who I am. I'm colored, uh, Negro, mulatto. All of those terms are used for the purpose of your, of the government.
0: Yes, for their yeah,
1: yeah, the government is. That's for the interest of the government, so so they can say that you are Thomas James Durant, and your ID number is four. I don't want to say it too loud because that's my Social Security number. Let <laughs> oh, we'll me cut that out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut the we'll cut number yeah. out. No, that's all right. Yeah. yeah, you can you can tell it because once people learn your Social Security number, and then they think that's who you are, because that is who you are. Registered with, with the United as States a government. citizen of the United, United States of America, and that's all they need to know. Your name is just something that you answer to. <laughs> My real identity <laughs> that the government yeah. concerned about. And the government it's, concerned about it's is your social and I have memorized that number. So, if I go to the bank, they don't <laughs> care who Thomas J. Duran is. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want the <laughs> to know the social security number. That's some good information. That's though. good information. Yeah, that's and true. the thieves want to know that too. That's all they want to know. Yeah, the thieves want to know because they know that that is the key to determining who you are what you have. And uh, your possessions and everything, and they—they they have that they can have access to all that you have.
0: Yeah, that's right. And That's why they work hard to steal your that's, social security right. number because that's your
1: true identity that's as far as in this identity. country. That's right. So, the the moment you are born, uh, you are given a social security number because otherwise you don't exist. As now, as far as, the, as far as the government, U.S. government, is as far as the government is concerned. Now, my grandfather, whose name was Henry Durant, and because Durant was the slave name, the plantation name of the plantation owners, that's who we got our name from. And, and where you grew up at? I grew up in DeSoto Parish, a small town called Mansfield, Louisiana. Yeah, and my, my uh, father's name was Thomas James Durant. The senior, his daddy's name was Henry Durant, who I was talking about you, you who, who did not have a social security number. Now I have to explain to you why, how that happened. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm gonna take a little venture and detour to tell okay. you that. I wanna hear that. Uh, during the days uh, of after emancipation, many blacks were born uh, who did not get their registration into, the Bureau of statistics, Uh, I was birthed into the world by my mother with the assistance of a midwife. And the midwife's name was Sister Betty. And Sister Betty was responsible for getting your birth records to... The, uh, I call it the Social Security office, whatever you oh, call it. The it. vital yeah. s- statistics, vital statistics, and register. Yeah. But it's really the Social Security just, office. No, that's no, all, they, that's all know. they want. That's now, all they want. So they can—they don't uh, care about nobody' no name or that. Nothing. No, mm, that's that not the most important thing. So once they get your records to the Department of Health or vital statistics, they register you and issue you a Social Security number and that becomes your source of identity for the rest of your life. In America. So, but my, my grandfather, uh, apparently his records didn't get to the, the health department for some reason, because they were live way back in the country. And you could be born, nobody even know you exist. <laughs> if you don't have a uh, uh, sister Betty, who's a midwife, didn't get the records to the, the health office, to register you, so that uh, you would have an official American identity. So he was illegal alien. Yeah. So he was illegal. So when it it came time for him to get his old folks' pension, and he applied for it, they told him, to, "Look, you, you don't exist <laughs> because we don't have any record of you." And yeah, you got a name, but you don't have a social security number. So uh, he had to establish that he was a citizen of the United States at age 65 before he could get his old folks' pension And he'd been living in the country for 65 years. And officially, he doesn't exist. (laughs) Yeah, so so that's my grandfather, uh, Henry. Now his father, his father's name, was Toby Toby Durant Toby, Toby. what? <laughs> like a good kid? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we haven't looked that up yet. So uh, they were the original good kid. <laughs> but this came through oral history. I, I sat uh, down and talked to my grandfather and asked him uh, what he knew about our family heritage and he told me who our people were. Now, Toby Durant was the son of an enslaved man named Sandy. Sandy Durant was an enslaved man, cause he was born uh, around the 1840s. Before before slavery ended. Yes, before slavery ended. And his son, Toby, uh, was born into slavery as a boy, but became free as a, a young boy. Uh, young man, and 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 so uh, that's part of of my history and and my heritage. But the point I was mentioning is that is that uh, after the emancipation, uh, which was January first, eighteen sixty-three, uh, they had to go back and and do research to find out. All the people who didn't exist, black people who didn't exist in America because they did not have a registered social security number. Now this is after uh, enslavement, uh, after January 4th, 1863 was the official date that blacks were freed by the 13th Amendment to the constitution, but it, that didn't matter because if your name was not written in the United States Book of Life <laughs> You didn't exist you was not part of this, you, you this was, place. Yeah, yeah, you know, isn't that something to behold? So when I tell you my name Is Kwame O'Reilly de see it has some significance and meaning to me uh beyond what it may mean to you or someone else because i know the history and my background from whence i came and not just me my people you know my father my grandfather my great-grandfather my great-great-grandfather and although i didn't know them uh but, through our history, my people told me who they were and 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 how we uh, uh, were able to uh, survive. because remember, you know, uh, it's a wonder that I'm sitting here today. It's a wonder that I'm uh, uh, my lineage is woven through the times of history. Well, my uh, ancestors came from Africa, and I ended up in Louisiana. My folks ended up in Louisiana. It's a miracle. <laughs> uh, and and I was gonna ask, well, look, you know, how did I? I survive, and all the people, many people before me, didn't. They're dead and gone, and 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 their ancestral history was cut off because of some. Tragedy, a disaster, or even uh, uh, they were just murdered at the hands of of white folks, uh, either as an enslaved person or uh, in the war, because you know black folks fought in all of the wars in the history of the, this country, and, and 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 even probably even the war. And and and, and my father was in World War Two. Oh, okay. And he told me some stories about that. If I can take a little detour there because Yeah, we well, let's let's yeah, talk uh, about it. Uh. Uh, my father uh was a at one time was a log cutter. And he was cutting logs out in the rural DeSoto Parish, uh with a white boss at another white logger and he discovered that the white logger was making 50 cents a day now that doesn't seem like a lot of money but during those times it was a lot of money or uh, 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 50 cents a day was considered to be uh that said minimum wages And that was about the 1930s that was, that was, that was the 1930s And, but my father was only making 25 cents a day. So he he was making, the other folks making half half the amount. Amount Mm -hmm. that his white counterpart was making. And he was doing the same work, or maybe even more. making 25 cents a day. So my father went to the boss man and said, look, I want the same wages. Now we're talking about it in the 1930s. In DeSoto Paris. In DeSoto Paris, Louisiana before Black Lives Matter (laughs) and 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 really the civil the modern civil rights movement my father had the audacity to go to his boss and ask for equal wages and I think his boss was kind of startled that he would even have the audacity to ask and and so he refused to grant my father uh equal wages but he did more than that too he went to the local uh draft board director who probably was one of his relatives and said that uh we want you to draft this uppity and we're gonna send him to the military because he's questioning his white boss so my father was was drafted in the military to go and fight in world war ii uh when he was in his uh mid 30s had four children he was a farmer all of which would have exempted him from going to fight in the military because at that time if you were a farmer if you were married and if you had a family uh, with children or uh, you would be exempted except for under dire emergencies so my father was you know in a, in, in a uh, 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 a classification that exempted him from the military, but because he was an uppity man and had the audacity to ask for the same salary as his white counterpart, he was drafted into the military. Now, uh, that had an impact on me because when my father went into the military, my mother was pregnant with me. So I, I almost miss being here mm. because uh, a few days or, or maybe months here or there then I would not have been conceived, you see, if he had gone to the military and, earlier.
0: And how much time did he serve in the military in World uh, War II?
1: He served three and a half years he in the leave military. He had to leave his family. He had to leave his family. And go to a uh, military base and, and train. I think they, they shipped them out from Seattle, Washington. That's what it, uh, uh, they rode by train from some place, base in the south, I've forgotten the name of it, up to Seattle, Washington by train. And they were shipped out from the Seattle, Washington across the Pacific. Uh, to what they were gonna be fighting in the war, which was on the Philippine Island. See, the the World War II was fought on a lot of different places. And one place is that they had war going on was in the Philippines. Uh, The Philippines were sort of an ally to the U.S., but the Japanese were contesting the Philippines for control over it. So my father was sent to the Philippines. Now, on the way, On the ship uh, across the Pacific en route to the Philippines, they had to pass Pearl Harbor. Now, this was August uh, 8th, uh, 1941, I think it was. The day after Pearl Harbor. The day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So when they passed Pearl Harbor on the ship, at it was, it was the place they were supposed to stop, it was all up in smoke and flame. And so they waved them on, said, you know, don't stop, there's nothing to stop here because Pearl Harbor has been destroyed. The Japanese bombers have, have bombed it." So my, see, my father told me this now. So they waved them on to the Philippines and he didn't stop. He, he said he saw ships, uh, turned up in the in, in the harbor, the smoking, and fire burning, you know, from the, the island, and, and, and it, it was just a, a, a bloody mess. The Japanese had pretty much destroyed uh, for the harbor. And I, now and I, he's on a ship, not supposed to be there, constricted into the military because of racism, and on his way to fight in a war for his country that denied him freedom and and, and equal rights uh, back home and so this was part of the real tragedy and the disaster for all of the uh, african American service people who went to the military because they fought in a war, but did not have liberty at home. They fought in a war for freedom, but they did not have freedom back at home. They fought in the war for something that benefited the country, but did not benefit their people. And so this is the real tragedy, but For us as a family, it was a tragedy for our family because it took the breadwinner away from his family and sent him into war, perhaps to get killed and never return because I, I kind of feel like the draft board officer uh, probably wanted him to get killed and never return after a punishment for his being an uppity asking, person. asking questions yeah so so doc
0: so you didn't know your father until when
1: i didn't know him until he got back from the service and 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 now and, and i'll tell you what happened he, he went to the military he, he fought behind the lines and they had a camp in the Philippine jungle. They had two major battles in the, in the Philippines. And I learned later that uh, America lost both of those battles in the Philippines. So they lost the battle, but they won the whole war. But the Japanese had, had, had beaten the Americans in the Philippines, where my father was. But my father was able to survive at the base where he was he was in the food supply and and material supply line getting supplies to the front line to the soldiers that's where he was so he was spared the brunt of the fighting but at the same time he had to survive the japanese airplanes that raided the camp and and he told me one story about um uh, you know they had foxholes, and every man soldier had to have a foxhole. They were, when the Japanese planes came in to raid the camp, they would uh, take cover and, and, and jump in the foxhole. And that's why you see always a a, a GI with a shovel on his back in the backpack, cause really he had to hole. dig a hole and get in it to keep the the bullets and the sharp nail from from killing them. So, daddy had his foxhole dug, and they had a, a one uh, day they had a surprise attack from a Japanese airplane, and daddy went to jump in his hole, but a, a young white soldier was in his hole, <laughs> and that he dug, uh, yeah, that he dug, and so now that was a cardinal sin in the military. You don't get in somebody's foxhole. You could be, you you, you you could kill someone who got in your father and nothing would be done because that's a cardinal sin uh, and a no-no in the military. So my dad rushed to get in his hole and you know you don't have much time to think because the airplane are coming, the sirens blaring and this little young white soldier in his hole. And daddy drew his shovel back to, to kill him, to hit him. And he said, if you don't get out, I'll kill you. And so he scrambled out of the hole and ran to find his hole and daddy got in his hole to take cover. And that's how he survived. Otherwise, you know, he could have been killed. And he never would have had a chance to see his family again, his son, which hadn't been born, which was me. And of course, I wouldn't have had a chance to see him. And and to have shared this story yeah and and to share this story and and here he is over there under these circumstances fighting now now to make a long story short, i won't tell you all the details but he told me a lot of other stories about his experience over there as a a young black soldier Uh, and we can maybe talk about this at another time but fortunately For him, he was able to escape death when he was sent to the Army, probably to die, by his local draft board at the age age of thirty. At the age of uh, thirty something, because he was married. He got married at twenty-five, and so he was sent in the military, maybe about. Uh, five or ten years after he was married because they had a young family at that time so he had children and he was able to make it back safely without getting killed he did not have to kill anyone and he did not get killed now ain't that a miracle you're sent to kill but your life was spared, and you didn't have to kill anybody why you in the military now that's a story to behold, but at the same time, come back to your own country, and risk have a greater risk of being killed over here. <laughs> if you get out of line, see, it, 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 isn't that ironic? Because when he got back here,
0: the treatment was exactly the same when he left. Yeah, you, you don't, you
1: still yeah. don't have any rights. So yeah, it was the same because so. uh, he got back and. Uh, I think it was 34, uh, he, he got back, uh, uh, I think, in 1944, and the military, I think the military was not desegregated until 1948 under President Harry S. Truman. So when he went to the military, it still was segregated? When he left the military, and when he left, it, when he went it, and when it, he left, it was still was segregation. When he came back home, he still dealing with segregation. He still had to deal with segregation. Probably to, well, up to when he died, he still dealing with segregation. Well, he died in 1992 oh, okay. at the age of 83, and a lot of changes had. He saw a lot of changes during his life, but still. Uh, uh, even in nineteen in the 1990s, if you didn't uh have resources that you acquired at an early time, you were still at a disadvantage. So what good is it to live a longer life if you're a rock or your resources uh, that you could have had what, what, i I', I will begin with this little m- metaphor because I heard a a, a preacher. Uh, state this, and I think it's it's really true and can provide some guidance uh, in life. He said that you go as far as you can see then you will see how far you can go. Hmm. So I couldn't see the end without taking the journey and every step forward reveals another opportunity. Because it, I, I knew that I wanted to do something that was, um, could make a difference, not only in my life, but uh, the life of the, my family and the community. But I only could see the first step. And, and that was given to me by my parents and and so this little metaphor that says that that you go as far as you can see because uh, most of the time you can't see the uh, the destination you can can envision it and you can set a goal or objective about where you want to go but you can't really see how to get there and that's basically uh, where I was. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't know exactly where the pieces were going to be and how they were going to fall in place. But I knew that I wanted to do something that was meaningful. Did you know you had any idea
0: that you would go get a PhD that was part of your program?
1: No, I, I didn't really know what a PhD was when I was growing <laughs> up. Uh, <laughs> I I knew that there were higher levels of education, but never in my wildest dream did I think that I was going to be, um, have the opportunities to go to a high, to the highest academic level in this country. And, and especially given uh, the resources and the background and whatever, uh, I didn't have everything given to me on a, uh, silver platter with a silver spoon in my mouth I had hard-working parents who who they took care of the basic necessities for me and my, and the rest of our family and they believed that whatever well, that was a will that was a weight and, and and they believed that if they worked hard and they provided nourishment for their children that they could be successful but they didn't know, how it's going to come about and I didn't either. So when I left home at age 18, I was admitted to Grambling State University and that was the first leg of my journey outside of Mansfield. Uh but the and Man- cars Manfield's in North Louisiana. Mansfield and is in northwest Louisiana. And Gramlins is in Gramlin And Gramlins in-, in north central Louisiana. Central, okay. So I grew up in the small town of Mansfield, which was about hundred and twenty miles from Gramlin. Did you, had you ever visit Gramlin before? I had been in the vicinity. Yes, I had ridden in that area. We took a trip up there, but I hadn't it really had not really Tour of the university in a way where I could become familiar with it. So I had heard about it, and I knew people who had attended there. But 120 miles away could be just like in a foreign country if you never <laughs> have been true. there.
0: Okay.
1: And and so uh, I was so happy when I was admitted, and, and and which meant that I had the opportunity to go further. Than just get into high school education, and so I uh, in in high school I, I was not uh, at the top of the list as far as being the smartest in the, in my class. I was probably ranked down out of a hundred students. I was ranked probably about about twentieth. Uh, well, you well, you know, he was ranked.
0: Yeah, at <laughs> okay, least I was ranked. Yeah, he was ranked.
1: And, I had a 2.9 grade point average on a 4.0 scale.
0: Pretty good. So uh,
1: I went into Gremlin thinking that I could um, achieve uh, a bachelor's degree in animal science because that was one of my strongest subjects um, in agriculture. and. I made good grades in agriculture but some of the other grades wasn't too hot like chemistry <laughs> okay. and math and algebra and, and, and um, um, geometry and all of that. I never was good in that but I was um, studied hard and I learned enough to pass those courses but I, I excelled in the sciences, agriculture sciences and the biological sciences. So that's where I d- decided to to, to, um, to major in. However, toward the end of my tenure at Gramlin State University, I decided that I wanted to be a a war traveler and a humanitarian. So I joined the United States Peace Corps. So, coming out of Grambling, you joined the United States? Yes. After I had struggled to get my degree, completed my degree, and graduated, I decided to join the United States Peace Corps. And some people, even in my own family, asked, well, look, why do you want to get a degree and then go off and work for free? free?" (laughs) Now, I don't know what other people may think about this, but i looked at at uh, knowledge and freedom as being something that you can't really buy and that uh, and that you have to learn the essence of it before you can really enjoy it and so i could have gone to graduate school or got a job but i believe that I needed to uh, serve humanity first. And where did you go serve in the Peace Corps? And and since I was able to get around serving in the military, which I I'll be frank, I wasn't all that keen about. I would have gone if I w- were called. But since I was not called, I was in school, and and I was able to complete my education. I wanted to serve my country in a more humanitarian way while at the same time exploring the world. I always had a fascination with exploring the world. I believed that that the world was bigger than my own little small community
0: Amazing. of Mansfield
1: India. or Louisiana or even the, the United States. I had read about other countries and I wanted to go out and explore, and at the same time, provide humanitarian service to the world. And I had 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 heard about and read a little bit about Africa, and I thought about going there. But the place that I had really set my goal on going was uh, Thailand. Thailand. Thailand, an, an Asian country. And the reason I uh, was interested in Thailand is that I had a course in economic geography and it dealt with world history. And i read about Thailand and the people and the culture of Thailand and I thought this would be a fascinating place to go to learn about a culture completely different from my own where I would have to learn the language and the people and the culture. And I wanted to go to a country that was totally different from the United States, from where I was raised, because I thought I could learn and benefit from knowledge of other cultures, rather than just learning about my own culture. And I have to acknowledge that I, didn't know everything about the United States. Although I had taken some trips and some tours in the United States, I didn't know everything about the United States. Well, How how long you was in Thailand? Well, I didn't go to Thailand. That's the interesting part about the journey. In 1963, the Peace Corps had just started about two years ago in 1961, under the administration of President uh kennedy john f kennedy and they didn't have any positions in thailand available so my next choice was to go to a country in west africa because i thought that well i can visit uh a country in africa and find out a little bit more about the roots of african americans so that was my second choice well they didn't have any openings in any country in Africa, West Africa, East Africa, or South Africa. Yeah. And remember that this was only two years after the Peace Corps had started. And they were just beginning to open up in different countries around the world. But they had no openings at that time in, in Africa. In Africa, the- particularly West Africa. And I knew that West Africa was part of the heritage of African-Americans because most of the the people who were brought to America as enslaved people came from West Africa. So uh, I said, well, maybe i just have to forget about the Peace Corps and find another venture in life uh, that I wanted to do. But lo and behold, I got a call from the Peace Corps a director, who said that we have a position in St. Lucia the West Indies and I said where in the world is St. Lucia (laughs) and I come to find out that St. Lucia is a small island country in the Lesser Antilles in the Eastern Caribbean Uh, uh, and is located about halfway between Jamaica and Trinidad, uh, to give you some geographical uh, perspective. And and so I looked up Saint Lucia, um, the history of Saint Lucia, and, and and come to find out that that it was a small country that that had been colonized uh, by the French the British and then back to the French, almost like uh, Louisiana that was colonized by the Spanish and, and then to the French and then back to the French. And and, and so St. Lucia also was a colonized country, but I also learned that that the natives of St. Lucia, who were the Carib and the Arawaks Native Americans were after the, the original occupants of of, 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 of St. Lucia. So I thought that well this is a fascinating place that I can serve uh, and provide some humanitarian service and then also learn something about. So I decided to go to, to St. Lucia. So I spent two years in St. Lucia working as an agriculturist uh, in a rural community called La Pointe on the south Western coast of St. Lucia. And I, w- I call that my development experience because that's where I really uh, d- developed um, uh, my maturity as a young man and gained sort of a war view of, uh, in terms of the meaning of, 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 of what I was doing and where I was and I became connected to the greater world order. And I think that's very important to know that, 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 that in America, we're just part of the universe. We're just part of the, of the world. And there are other people, other cultures and other countries outside of America that we need to learn from and i still believe that today that that we need to provide humanitarian service and learn from other people in other countries and there is much that we can learn from them we don't know everything i don't know everything and so i did i learned a great deal i shared a great deal and i learned a great deal uh and so when i came back to America, having completed my service, two years of volunteer work in St. Lucia, I was more mature, I was a man, because I wasn't the man who I left, I I may have been 22 years old, but I don't consider myself as a man, because as a man, you, you have to know how to live. Uh, like a man. You have to have the thought and the mind and the consciousness of a man. But I call it a growing up experience in the Peace Corps. And then I had time to think about what I really wanted to do in life. So that's where where most of your thinking took place. Absolutely. I read more books when I was in the Peace Corps than I ever read in my life. I read 45 books. In two years. In two years. And i haven't read that many books this since <laughs> uh complete you know complete. Uh, uh without nobody requiring it or pushing it and saying that you have to do this i read this on my own so you, it opened, you your
0: mind got it was expanded through your travel and you reading. that's
1: correct and so uh i felt like i was a renewed creature before i came back to america and i felt like uh i could go as far as my own intellect and energy could take me not by what somebody else did for me and 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 that's a perspective that you have to have that that your destiny is not controlled by someone else Oh, yes, you know, there would be obstacles, there would be people who will put uh, blocks in in your path and obstacles in in your way. But you have to be able to figure out how you're going to get through this course of life. Go around them or through them or over them or find an alternative. And that's what the Peace Corps did for me. So I knew what I wanted to do when I got back to the U.S.
0: So, so the Peace Corps helped you to find you.
1: Absolutely. And, and, it your, and your inner strengths. It, it helped to me to find who I was to build on who I was becoming. And, and then expose to me and reveal to me what my inner strengths were. And I think that's, that, that's something that you can't teach. In the classroom, Uh, 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 a teacher can't teach you to know who you are. A teacher can't teach you to know what your strengths are. They can help guide you and provide mentorship and leadership, but they can't teach you that. You have to discover that. Hmm. And the way you discover that is you get outside of your comfort zone and go somewhere where you're exposed to uh, a different culture where you learn how to survive, you learn how to live you learn how to share and when you complete that experience then you know who you are. But you know as you
0: say once you discover it you use you a part of the process you saw figured out what it took to even get to that place
1: absolutely So that's the
0: part of the growth the development it's almost like you know i played football and we knew every game we played that was gonna be our stickers that was not the guy in front of you that's right to stop you that's from right. doing what you were supposed to be doing that's right so you had to overcome a lot you already had figured out okay that we, i want to win the game but i that's gotta right. go through this guy or this guy got to come through me
1: that's right and i like the analogy that you give with football or sports you know because it's the same concept you know, if you haven't played before, you got to learn the game, learn the rules, then you got to learn how to play it. And in the process, you're going to learn your strengths and your weaknesses. And well, I learned some of my weaknesses let, let, let me, in the Peace Corps.
0: Let me share this with you, Doc. And I, I, I need some help with this one here. Yeah. I, when I played sports, I dealt with strengths, I didn't deal with weakness. Let me tell you why. I've looked at it this way. When I played football at LSU, I best served LSU as, as a defensive linebacker, or they call it DN back then. And I done a great job at it. And if LSU had put me at defensive back, it wasn't that I was weak at it, I didn't best serve them in that position. Or if they put me at running back, not that I was weak at it, I would best serve them I wouldn't have best served them in that position. So it's not that it's a weakness, it's best you best serve where you like you said, you was not strong in the science not in the math, in chemistry, but you were you were good in uh, science. So it's not that you're weak in there; just that you you better in those areas. Well, and that's where that, life is. That, that's
1: one way you can do it, you know. But you have to know you have to know your limitations. Things. Yes, you know your limitations. What your strengths are. That's that's all I'm saying. When I say weakness, I don't mean that it's something that you can't do or can't overcome. But you know the areas where you have your strengths are, and and. And if you know where your strengths are, would it be better to- You'd be better, you'd be better off, just off. focus on those, in that, in that yeah.
0: area, in those yeah. areas.
1: And that, that you could probably be more successful in those areas because you have a greater interest in it, commitment in it, uh, to it. And and where you spend most of your time and energy, that's where you're gonna be becoming better in. And also why in the Peace Corps, in uh, where are we located again?
0: St. Lucia. In St. Lucia, that one of the islands you had a chance to meet the Queen of England. Oh, you remember that? Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> so tell us about that that, that, uh,
0: that situation. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, Saint uh, Lucia at, at one time was a British uh, uh, colony, and they were under the the, the Crown Prince and the Kingdom of of, of Great Britain and all of the subjects to of Great Britain uh, had to give honor and their loyalty and their pledge their allegiance to the Crown Prince. And although St. Lucia had, had gained its independence at the time, but it still was a British colony, you know, a subject, you know. And and, and that's, that's the way I heard you mention something in one of your lecture pie with
0: a pie uh, to that. talk about the Queen of England. Yeah. Right.
1: What freedom means in, in, under the British crown. And, uh, so, Queen Elizabeth the Second came to St. Lucia the, the, during same the, time, queen, the same queen that's here? To the same state? queen that's now the current queen of Elizabeth II. I'll tell you, she's in her 90s now, about 95 years old. And it was <laughs> in the 1940s? Uh, I, I was uh, in, in St. Lucia in 19... Uh, sixty nineteen or sixties. Five. And she was a queen in 1965. She was a, she was the queen. She was a young lady. And was probably nine, not much older than me. And it was now
0: it's twenty twenty one. And she's still a yeah. queen.
1: Yeah, and she's still a queen. But but what I was really uh 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 kinda of struck by was the fact that we were all lined up in order in, in order to meet the queen you had to have yeah, uh, it was a r- protocol r- protocol that's a good word for it and so they lined us up and the Queen came down and shook all of our hands and so it was a memorable event to say that you shook the hand of Queen Elizabeth the second
0: you had to sing the great song with that great and song then, was
1: and then saying uh, <laughs> God save the Queen <laughs> <laughs> God have saved yeah. the, the yeah. 20, the, uh, so so I actually did that. You know, I uh, was a part of that experience. You know, and and it was to me kind of all of a ritual. I, I knew uh, a little bit about the the whole um, King, British crown situation. I had read about it, so I went along with the rituals, and I would. I was happy to meet this dignitary. So you did queen. shake the Queen's hand? Yeah, she shook Oh, hands. you want a few people can say when you shook the
0: queen, of, You shook. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Now, we got a special guest for real here then. Yes. Dr. Thomas Durant, Brother Kwame, the O'Reilly the Coat. The aqua. the aqua. Shook the hand, shook of, the of, the, hand of, of the
1: great Queen
0: Elizabeth II. Who was the, the Queen that in 2021, she's still the Queen of England. That's right. You That's shook her right. hand That's then. right. As a young lady and a young man, cause you in yes. your eighties now, she's in the nineties.
1: Yes, and, and, and I had even shaken the hand of the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who was John F. Kennedy at the time. And, and, and he's the one who formed the Peace Corps. But I did get a letter from the president that I still have in my office. Oh, you got a letter? Okay. President John F. Kennedy uh, greeting me and weaponing me to the US Peace Corps. And what was the purpose of the Peace Corps? Well, the the Peace Corps was uh, a humanitarian, an international humanitarian organization to bring about goodwill and development to people all over the world from the US. And also uh, to provide humanitarian services that could hopefully help uh people around the world to inspire them to go on the big and better thing now some people said there was some underlying motives to the peace corps. you know to uh, I, I i heard all of it in fact during our training we were told that some people uh, are, are gonna think that we are here to uh to be a missionary to overcome communism to promote democracy and defeat communism i heard that in fact i I would ask that question that do you know you you're going to help fight communism and to promote democracy and i would say well i'm going to promote humanitarianism now i don't know if that's one of the motives of the peace corps And, and it probably was to promote democracy because we we had a course on democracy versus communism, so I, I can't uh, dispute that. But I knew um, my purpose for going, and you have to always be aware of your motives. Somebody else may have another motives. And just like you play football, well, they may have had a, a, a motive, but you had your own motive for how you want to use it to get to where you wanted to go. And you had to to be true to thine self in that regard, and not let the super motive take full control over your own individual motive. And 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 and, and, and that is. I think what the Peace Corps helped me to do in my journey. And, I, and, 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 and let's take, for example, the United States. Uh, I'm born in the United States, I'm a United States citizen, but I don't agree with all the aspects of, of the United States system. Uh, I, I agree with some, I disagree with some. So I have to navigate my path in an area that I feel like can best afford me with the opportunities to live out my dream and to provide services to uh, my country that way. And this is the reason I believe that, uh, I I don't believe in, 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 in doing things for show, like just sing the national anthem wave the flag or uh make a patriotic statement i think that the best way to show you that you are an american is to live like an american that's kind of free people but that's kind of contradictory for
0: us as a people yeah because the people who so call themselves americans have not lived up to that. They treated us.
1: That that's
0: correct. <laughs> like we were that's really, correct. As they considered us as property
1: right. or animals. So so when I uh, uh, arrived in Saint Lucia, people didn't know what to expect from me. Because
0: there, that, there was many more like of your uh,
1: Yeah there was Peace Corps volunteers there. No 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 not just Peace Corps of African descent. Well, there was only one in my group. I was it. Okay, then. And the one who I succeeded was a, <laughs> a white one. <laughs> uh, mayor from Iowa. And they were George. And so the, uh, the people in St. Lucia, especially in the community where I worked, wanted to see who this new Peace Corps volunteer was gonna be. And when they discovered that I was black they were intrigued because they wanted to know the meaning of a, a black American. So I really had the opportunity to not only uh, educate them, but that also demonstrate to them who I was and that everybody in the U.S. is not the same. So you're talking about the, the people from St. Lucia? Yes. And they of African descent themselves, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. And, and so, in fact, one guy After we had uh, been talking and we had a few rum and cokes, you know, that's the big drink over there, you know, rum, you sit out on the beach or on a coconut tree and drink rum and coke, you know. And so after we had had a few rounds of rum and coke, he was bold enough to make this statement. He said, uh, he put his arm upside beside my arm and said, you see, we both the same color he said but you are yankee you're a black yankee that's what he called me never heard that term before yeah black yankee i had never heard that term before so what he was actually saying to me and i asked him what he meant by that. he said well look um we are the same color but we got different cultures we we are the same color but you are from a rich nation i'm from a poor nation we are the same color but you are coming here to help us, and, uh, 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 and then he looked at me to see what I was going to make of it and what I was going to say. And, and, and so my comment to him was that, yeah, we, we are both brothers in color, but not necessarily in culture we are maybe brothers in history but not necessarily in terms of culture and that all people in america are not alike and i'm just one of those from america who happens to be an african-american same color as you but i'm from a different subculture in america than my predecessor George who was from a white guy from Iowa so he he started grinning you know because uh, he wanted to see if I knew who I was and he wanted to tell me what he knew about black people from America and so I was under the the microscope in St. Lucia by being an African American coming to St. Lucia, uh, while all of the other volunteers were white, and he wanted to see uh, what where I was coming from, and was there any difference between me and the rest of the volunteer? So I I. I was able to um, uh, gain some rapport with the people because I accepted them for who they were and why they were and did not consider myself superior to them in intelligence. In fact, I gave them uh, commendations for things that they did because I could not help them unless they helped themselves. They had more knowledge of their culture and their people than I did. So I could never be as great as they were in their country because they mastered their culture and their their knowledge of their people. And I told them that, And, and that I could, they could help me as much or more than I could help them because I was learning more about them uh, while they were learning uh, more about about me. me. So it it was more of a sharing type thing. And, And I wanted to get them to thinking about this because if you think of yourself as always being dependent, well, you're already in a trap because you don't feel like you can rise to above where you are and that, someone else always going to have to lead you and i wanted to get them out of that mindset that that you can't be a leader yourself and you can do the same thing that i'm doing in your own country where you have greater knowledge of your people and your culture but,
0: but yet still we got the british monarch. uh we got the united states of america working together uh, some people say in cahoots that in this other country and it's other people you can help yourself but we here to help you right yeah so it's kind of it's a it's a a quasar situation because you you really want to control the people
1: well that's true it's a catch-22 situation you know and and I had to be honest with them that said that look I don't believe everything that uh, my country says you know, I'm an independent person. I'm live in America. I'm from America. I'm a citizen of America. But I don't agree with everything that goes on in America. And 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 they they, they could sense that. And later on it became a reality because while I was in Peace Corps, uh, our president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated while I was serving there. And one uh, uh, St. Lucian came up to me and said, uh, did you know your president had just been shot A- and, and I think he he was killed. Now here's somebody f- from another country where I'm working, come up to me and tell me and ask me that, that I know if my president had been Did you, did been you shot. know at that time? No, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so it was revealed to me by St. Lucian that that president john f kennedy had been assassinated i thought that was you know amusing that he got the information before i did and he was asking me if i knew it now th- the the implication of that is not only bringing news to me about a tragedy that happened in my country but it's to tell me that you came over here to help me <laughs> and you got people in your country that are killing the president and you're supposed to be developed. So who is developed? I mean, I mean that's basically what he's saying. You know, you come from a developed society, modernized society. You have all yeah. of the resources, and, and at S- the same time, uh, you got barbaric type people who are uh, assassinating your president. Yeah, you, you're, supposed to called, you're supposed to be coming from the
0: civilized country. Yeah, yeah, and they act like animals. Yeah.
1: And so, how how, how can I, I defend that? You know, but I had already, you know, mentioned to them that I didn't agree with everything about in, in, in what happened in America, and I'm on a part of it. And 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 uh, uh, America is a, a, a diverse country, and we don't all believe the same thing. It's at, at the same time, I'm a Be- citizen.
0: Because was segregation still
1: going on at the time yeah i mean the civil rights movement was in full bloom in 1963 to 65 when i was in saint lucia i mean i was i would listen on the radio to uh demonstrations and 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 protests and marches on the radio we didn't have television over there at the time not in saint lucia but i could listen uh to the radio and get the news about the civil rights movement in the united states while i am overseas working in a country under the american flag can you imagine that and have somebody a uh, saint lucian to come up and, and tell me that my president has been assassinated i mean uh, I, I feel helpless
0: because you helpless first of all you out in another country, on behalf of your country, who have not freed you or your people yep. at home, so, but you're supposed to be out here helping some, another group of people.
1: Yes. And, and see, that was the dilemma of the black Yankee concept that he had. You're a Yankee, but you're still black. You're from America, but you're still black. And being black, you, you, you're still not free. And you came over here to free us. Yep. Uh, be free from <laughs> ignorance and or whatever, development. And you're not free. So, in essence, he asked me, well, look, uh, why are you here? Maybe you need to go home and, a- a- and help your own people <laughs> uh, get become free. Uh, but, but, you know, my position was that, well, you know, To a certain extent, freedom is a mindset. And yes, there are liberties that prevent me from doing everything I wanna do. Yes, the civil rights movement is going on. But if I remain in a mindset that I'm defeated, then I never can progress beyond where I am. So I'm, I'm over here because I believe in the good things that we are doing and i believe that i can help bring some enlightenment and more humanity to other parts of the world so i don't have to wait until we get total freedom in order for that to happen if you did nobody would do anything that's true because to a certain extent uh, uh we all have some limitations so anyway it, it, it was a uh, an experience that that was unlike any I had ever had before or even since. And to meet the queen was big. Was big back then. Yeah, yeah, it was big, but it was not the biggest thing for me. Oh, you definitely. know, I, I'm I'm not very impressed with uh, dignitaries and and uh, authorities, and so um, it it was a new experience. It was something that was part of the course of history in my life but it was not the most important thing that happened to me in St. Lucia, meeting the Queen.
0: Look, we we want to move on from, uh, you you explained some things to me earlier. Now you say you end up, after graduating from Gremlins, going to the Peace Corps, end up in St. Lucia. So what, after you left St. Lucia, where was the next destination?
1: Well, the next destination was to come back to the US and marry my college sweetheart because I had had made a promise to my college sweetheart that we would get married once both of us finished our education. And that was the pact we made at Grammarly, that there would be no marriage unless both of us finished college. You hear what I'm saying, Miss uh, <laughs> Sammy? <laughs> and, and, and because we felt that we needed, both of us needed an education in order to maximize our potential for success in America. Now, who was your wife? My wife, uh, Mary C. Peyton Durant. And so since she was two years behind me. Oh, oh that's why you went to Peace School. Yeah, t- t- I t- wait, yeah. Well, up. Well, well it was very convenient. <laughs> because while I was in the Peace Corps, see she was finishing up her education at Gramlin. And, and 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 as soon as I returned from the Peace Corps in in uh in July of nineteen sixty five, um uh, we met and I made good on my promise. She made good on her promise. And we were married on August 23rd, 1965, in St. Francisville, Louisiana, where she was from. And, and so that was the first thing on the agenda, was to get married. Yeah, then the second thing on the agenda was to uh, complete, continue my education. And so I got, had applied to and got admitted to Tuskegee University. It was oh. Called Tuskegee Institute at the time. And I had read a lot about Tuskegee and the founder uh, Booger T. Washington and the Washington Mystique and George Washington Carver, who was um, a, a famous scientist there at Tuskegee and the whole Tuskegee ex- experiment with syphilis and the Tuskegee Airmen. And uh, uh, I mean, so Tuskegee had some really rich history dealing with civil rights and promotion of education and and the book t washington george washington Carver um uh developments there and so i thought that well this and it's a private black school in alabama in the heart of the south uh george wallace was president i wasn't too uh thrilled about that but it was a place I could go and further my education.
0: And George so- George White was the governor of Alabama
1: Yeah. At the time. Yeah, he was governor of Alabama at the time. So- He was a true Seg. He was a staunch segregationist. No, he stood in the door of the University of Alabama and said segregation, now segregation, yeah. then yeah. segregation yeah. forever. Right. The infamous words that he made. And he stood in the door at the University of Alabama to block the first Blacks who were admitted uh, there at the University of Alabama. And, and uh, but that's the kind of environment that was going on. So while I was at Tuskegee, uh, it was another education, educational experience in the Deep South at a university surrounded by Jim Crow. Can you imagine that? that that you're surrounded by jim crow and, and not only that surrounded by the history of jim crow and just off campus you got people who wouldn't mind killing you for getting out of your place you know and there have been demonstrations around tuskegee and then i never forget that i went on a, an assignment out into um, Sumter County and Greene County Alabama to do uh... uh, some research on black farmers who were had been evicted from plantations in um, south central Alabama and it was at that time that I I came face to face with people who were sympathetic with the Klansmen, and large plantation owners who had evicted blacks from the, uh, who were sharecroppers. They were living in tent cities. And so my assignment was to find out why they were evicted and what type of accommodations could, uh, they needed uh, in order to survive. So I had to go in the heart of the Klan's area to get that information, and and I was just uh, fortunate enough to make it out without being killed or uh, lynched, or, because you know lynching was still going on in the '60s, not as prevalent as they were before, but you know, people, black people would disappear. And, and so I went out there and I, 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 I did my assignment and I didn't realize how dangerous it was until later on when they started having more demonstrations around the Tuskegee area. So you didn't realize you was in harm's, harm's way. You was just doing- I was uh, doing my job. job
0: or an assignment that, that was, that my was assignment given to you. my assignment. And- While uh, a student, were you working on your master's degree at the time?
1: Uh, no, I had finished my uh, master's degree then. Well, what did you finish? Your I master's? Was, I at? W- uh, my master's degree was in agricultural education. Where? Where? where at? at Tuskegee. Okay. And I got a job at Tuskegee in, in the rural development center, and that's why I was sent on that assignment out in the rural areas to uh, investigate the sharecroppers' dilemma of being evicted from. White plantation, uh, 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 white-owned plantation, and and so it, it, it was my first encounter with with um, let's say a civil uh, civil rights issue that I was directly involved in, and there were marches which I participated in in, in St. Lucia. But this was an assignment where I had to really go out and. And, and and do the research and talk to the people. And I talked to farmers, black farmers who were evicted. And I attempted to talk to the white plantation owners who evicted them, but, but they uh, uh, shunned me, uh, wouldn't have, uh, um, anything to do with me wouldn't talk to me so you only
0: got you only got one side of the story then.
1: i only got one side of the story but you can't refuse people you can't uh, uh, uh make people do what they refuse to do what, and so what, what, so what I, I had to show that i did, i gave them the opportunity to present their side well you call that good faith yes yes so but, but what was the
0: reason that you found out what what did the what the farmers what was the reason the
1: farmers gave good question on good why question. they was evicted. Well, uh, the reason that the farmers gave for them being evicted was that uh, they signed a petition against the plantation owner for taking their crop acreage allotment that was provided by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And see, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was given a, a, a allotments for, they call it a cotton agriculture allotment, but they call it crop subsidies. They paid that directly to the farmers. It was supposed to go directly to the farmers. But the plantation owners were keeping all of it for themselves. When the farmers protested against uh, the owners, Almost like slavery, you know, uh, you know, a new form of slavery. Then in retaliation, the plantation owner evicted all of the blacks who signed a petition from the plantation. Well, they were living in houses that were owned by the plantation owner, although they had probably worked and paid for them many times over. But but they lived in, in the houses on the plantation as sharecroppers. They didn't own anything. All they had was labor, which which was being exploited we, we, as a sharecropper because they were not even getting what they were working for in a lot of instances. My grandmother was a sharecropper, so she told me how they were cheated out of their out of their fair share she, of but, the crop. But she was a, she was
0: a. a sharecropper in Louisiana. In Louisiana.
1: But it was all across the South.
0: It was the same concept. The same yeah. concept. All across the South. In other words, they call it sharecropper. In other words, you do all the work and you share your crop with me. I ain't yeah. gonna do nothing. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's really cool I made say. the decision about how we're gonna share. <laughs> yeah. It. How do. we're gonna share. Yeah, it. We're gonna, we're so gonna if, share. I, if I'm the owner and I say, you made uh, two bales of cotton this year, and I know that I made 10 bales, I don't have any authority and say, because that is the suppression and oppression of who a sharecropper is. that is that that you have no legal authority and right to challenge your boss. and that's part of, that's part of uh, uh, of the Jim Crow era sharecropping was. So you could not dispute your boss. A black man could dispute a white man your boss or, or, or any other white person. So uh, it was a part of the, of the uh, black codes that came from the slave codes that were instituted to keep blacks subjugated to whites on plantations to provide the wealth or uh, the labor which created the, uh, generated the wealth for white people. That's the way it was. So now here's what happened. The people who filed a petition with the NAACP against the exploitation of the plantation owners, they were evicted immediately. They told they were ha- they were told they had to leave the plantation immediately. They had no place to go so they lived in tents along the highways in those counties where they were evicted they all it tenth city individuals who didn't sign were given one month to vacate the houses so the only concession you got for not signing the petition was one month but you still got evicted what a cruel lesson what a cruel lesson that you can be a faithful servant and not even sign a petition against the, the owner of the plantation and you still get evicted because there was a lot of money being distributed and, the, and these th- that's these correct and so the the owner was keeping all of the money and, and was, not you see I, I don't need you now i, got now I you. don't
0: need you but but only because of the 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 people that was doing the sharecropping is why they even got the money they're supposed to be easily distributed that's right.
1: distributed. that's right and the United States Department of Agriculture, they were derelict in that duty because they were not enforcing the law, because they knew what was happening, but they failed to uh, enforce the law to see that the money got to the sharecroppers, their fair share got to the sharecroppers, and that that the the owners kept the money. So they were in a part in. And uh, complicity with uh, the owners, but but this this was happening simultaneously all over the U.S. Though. Yes, that that's correct. This all over the the U.S. This same concept was going on. So it was a new form of of slavery. Sharecropping was a new form of slavery. But once once the the, uh, the
0: plantation owners got extra money, they they had no need for them at all.
1: Yeah. And so what good is it to gain freedom now you don't have a job, then uh, uh, when, and I know we are going into the, uh, another area, but but when emancipation came for black people in America, particularly in the South, who lived on plantations, uh, most of them had no place to go. They had no place to go. And of the... Uh, uh, approximately four million blacks who were freed under the Emancipation Proclamation. Half of them stayed on the plantations, and about half of them left and went off into this strange wilderness that we call freedom of uh, in America. I call it not knowing what was going to be the, the their destiny. But well, they call that an abyss. An abyss. You <laughs> yeah, could call right. it that yeah. because if you don't know where you're going, you're just taking a chance, and although there were places in the north that were a little bit more um, receptive to blacks, but still they exploited the labor of black folks once they got to okay. Detroit, Chicago, and New York, Philadelphia, wherever they were going. They still were exploited done for labor because they were on the lower end of the totem pole. They. Uh, could not join Union. They were afraid to join Union because this was seen as being uh, anti-owners and anti-industry. And so they still had a plight, but they still had courage enough to leave the plantations, not knowing what was going to be the outcome. And so these were really brave people, brave people who left. And some of them left, and and they didn't move to the north. They formed communities right outside of the plantations. They have settlements now along the Mississippi River, between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, of settlements that were formed by freed slaves. One of them is called Freetown. That was formed by freed slaves who moved off the plantation, was right down the road. And they started little towns and communities uh, along the River Road area. The same thing happened all over the South, but this is one that I I know about and studied about because uh, I did some research for this book called "Our Roots Run Deep, which is um, a book that I wrote for the River Road African American Museum that uh, provides education on the history of black people uh, during enslavement and after enslavement, uh, so-called after freedom, so we call it aboriginal Runde. But but yeah, this all this was going on. So at Tuskegee, I had a, 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 a direct experience of in, in, uh, and knowledge in this because this was my job. And I learned uh, quite a bit about sharecropping and people. I had known about it anyway, but I mean, I had a a direct experience in learning about it from the people uh, who lived in that area. So I think that was probably as educational or even more (laughs) than the textbooks that I read at at uh, Tuskegee because it was a a direct experience, not just a textbook experience. But while I was at Tuskegee, I learned, uh, I lived with uh, Booger T. Washington's daughter-in-law in in one of the houses that Booger T. Washington built. And I got a firsthand history of who Booger T. Washington was from his daughter-in-law because she married his youngest son, and her name was Idiot Washington Sheehee. So and, so what was his son living at the time? No, um, he had passed, but she was still living. She was in her late 80s, but still very, very active. And she had, uh, 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 she lived in that house right across from Tuskegee. Uh, that Booger T. Washington helped Bill with his own hands. And so i, I got first hand knowledge and information and and exposure to uh, the Booger T. Washington concept of billing with your hands and and um, letting your bucket down where you are and 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 his whole concept. And I know that some people Called Booker T. Washington and Uncle Tom, and said that his concept wasn't wasn't the right one for freedom for African Americans, and the whole debate between Booker T. Washington and Du Bois. and 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 W. B. Du Bois and all of that, and all of that is good, but but I could see uh, that what he was teaching at the time was of value to the people who were in in the plight that they were in yeah because they didn't have no education yeah so what do you do do you wait to get an education or do you force your head to make a living for yourself and your family so that the next generation can perhaps get an education and 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 and, and, and it's been debated over the years, uh uh, that was that uh that equality, you know, do you fight for equality or do you fight for survival? What is most basic for you?
0: No, no. And
1: Booty Washington felt that you fight for survival first, what you call economic yeah. independence. Yeah. Yeah. collective work and experience. But you yeah. fight for that first and you live yeah. for another day so the next generation can maybe have equality. Now whether or not that will work for everybody, you know, that's you know, an issue. Uh, and But W.B. Du Bois advocated for uh, equality with whites. He said, you know, the schools ought to be integrated, blacks ought to have the same opportunity. But Washington felt like, at least in my lifetime, that's not going to happen. And, of course, he was right. But Du Bois was also right. Because he was saying that if you don't ever start fighting, then you're never going to win. Okay, you're gonna have a chance of winning. So somebody's gonna have to make the sacrifice to start fighting first Even though the situation may look bleak. So I, I Think they both had legit legitimate points and it's almost like Malcolm X and and Martin Luther King. They both had legitimate points uh, Peaceful coexistence in one thing But then you're gonna have to use some uh forced to fight for your rights. So, so uh, just as Booker T. E. Washington and W. D. E. DeBoer both I think had, were right. I think both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were both right from their own perspective. So I, I don't, not one against the other one. People can debate and debate, but they both played a role because you can't have all people being peaceful. I mean, I'm just gonna tell you like it is. Some people are gonna to have to take up arms and fight, you know, uh, 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 for your rights. And and if you ask me, I really, you know, thought about this and I really think that, that one of the reasons that it took so long for blacks to gain liberation is that, uh, they were not violent enough. Now that may sounds like you know I'm I'm preaching violence. Well, violence has a role. I think violence has a role. In other words, violence has a role when you stand up and fight and live and die for what you believe in. I think violence is appropriate. And and I think that that if 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 black people had been more forceful, I think that. It may not have taken as long to get to where we are, but a lot of more well, people would have died, and, and some people died anyway. No, but please. but 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 it would have been all that wall because I think when you stand up for your right, people got more respect for you than when you don't. Really? And I think that, uh, and I'm not saying I, I promote one over the other, because everybody has to make their own decision.
0: But that, where that goes with the, what I learned years ago. Freedom is not free. <laughs> just, you know, we think we got freedom, but somebody signed a paper, which they call a mascarpist approximation. Just yeah. so like they signed it, they can sign it again. To, yeah. To remove it. Yeah. So what is what is this? You know, if you're not willing to fight for something. I learned a long time ago, like if you, let's say if you decide somebody going to come in and start a fight with you, and if you just fold up, lay down, and you know, and you're on the ground, you kinda of get in that little of stand, you say, Well, maybe they won't kick me anymore, maybe they'll they'll leave me alone. But when you realize that when you get in that position, they start kicking harder. Because yeah. you don't surrender but that's sure. gonna stop them from coming sure. after you. Sure. So what I realize is that if you are in that position and you start just getting a good position where you can just get one good kick back. If you, you can just get one good kick and you hit them in the right place, the one that's doing the kicking, they're going to be moving around to make sure that you ain't going to kick them
1: again. They're going to better position themselves. Yeah. Well, even if you have to die, that's the sacrifice that you have to make. You, you have to choose how you're going to live and you have to choose how you're going to die. And knowing that, your dying is not going to be in vain. That's what you have to look at. Your dying is not going to be in vain because if you're fighting for something that you truly believe in, then you're worth dying it's for. worth dying for. It's worth dying for. And if you don't ever come to that point, you never can move further.
0: And that's what Martin Gang preached at the end. Yeah. yeah
1: man you may you the never doc- be able to move further because uh, you're not willing to make the necessary sacrifice for, for what you need to do to gain your ultimate freedom.
0: freedom. So, King finally said, if a man is not willing to die for something, he's not
1: fit to live. Not fit to live. And, 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 and there's a lot of um, uh, a, 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 a truth in that statement, you know, because everybody's gonna die and but it's what you're willing to die for that determines the the the, the strength of your character as far as fighting and, and the true the determination. Essence of the being. Yeah, the true essence of who you are. So uh, uh, we can uh, debate that, and 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 I'm sure there'll be t- people who have different perspectives on it, but. But I I have to look at the world as I see it and the society as I see it and be willing to first accept the truth to myself. And Then I have to be willing to fight for what I believe in because that's the only way you're going to convince people uh, that what you're saying that you believe in is you go out and fight for it. If you're always are telling someone the truth and you're never fighting for it, you don't have no credibility. Yeah.
0: What the first I thing don't know. care who you are. And what the, what they gonna say? They all President, talk, they preacher, all talk. All... Doctor,
1: lawyer, yes. or, or, or whomever.
0: The things people gonna say, they just all talk.
1: That's they just right. talk. That's right. So you gotta be put you gotta put some action to it. That's right. And so when you put your life on the line, and that's one of the things that I liked about Dr. King, he put his life on the line, but Malcolm X also put his life on the line in different contexts, different situation. But, but they they both had to put their life on the line to con- left convince it, other people right. that they uh, were legitimate and were serious. and And I think that it, it still is true. It still is true. Anyway, uh, Tuskegee was a, another experience that. I, another part of my development experience or actually seeing part of America that I had never seen before because I was shielded from it. Or I went to the Peace Corps. I was out of the country when the Civil Rights Movement, at the heart of the Civil Rights Movement. So when I came back, I had to know how I was going to respond to all of the things that were happening in America. Uh, What uh, what am I gonna do? And how am I going to respond? So I feel like I had to take that that assignment. Uh, Despite the fact that I could have been killed or lynched or or what have you, I feel like I had to do it. I was fortunate that that I I did survive, but I thought about it uh, uh, many days as I was coming back from the field at night by myself, driving in a country road in rural Alabama,
0: and in we, known clan area. And when you had a, a, a new wife?
1: Yeah, a new wife. And uh, we were beginning a family. And so, uh, who, who, uh, uh, who knows what could have happened. But uh, it was my fortune that, i survived to go on and left that environment and then moved into another environment at the university of wisconsin the university of wisconsin
0: so you went all the way from from the south the south of louisiana north louisiana called Gramlin, to the other south southeast called Alabama at Tuskegee, the great Tuskegee University. Now you end up, you're going up, now you're going upwards. You went up north to Green Bay? Madison. Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin. And you went to the University of Wisconsin.
1: Yes. And how you end up at Wisconsin? Well, my major professor, the name was Grady Taylor, Dr. Taylor, was a graduate of the University of Wisconsin from Tuskegee yeah now how he got there is a long story but during that time they were paying blacks to go outside of the South to get their education at another university No, no. who was paying uh, the state of Louisiana <laughs> the state of Alabama where segregation was would pay uh, blacks To leave the state because they could not go to the University of Alabama or Louisiana State University uh, or the predominant or the all white schools. They would pay you a stipend to go outside of the South to another university to get your doctor's degree because there was no university in Louisiana that offered a PhD to black people. So when you came out of school,
0: you could not get a PhD in the state of Louisiana. A black person could not get a
1: PhD in, a, that's, that's in the you. state of Louisiana. That's you,
0: right? <laughs> that's me. Okay. then. You yeah. could not get a, a PhD in the state of Louisiana. Yeah. But I came in, out in, in, that, just, in, in that particular uh, what do you call that uh, subject? What you, gonna, what you call it again? Uh, in that particular subject matter, or any
1: any 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 subject, period, discipline in that particular discipline. Any discipline. Uh, because that was the, the nature of segregation uh blacks could not attend white schools i mean this was a carryover from slavery so what, what year was this that now this was 1966 but uh, there were several um uh, laws that were in the process of changing this there were several protests to change this. And so, toward the end of 1966, the University of Alabama had been desegregated. Two blacks were admitted to the University of Alabama. So since they ruled that the University of Alabama was now desegregated, they discontinued that stipend to pay blacks to leave Alabama to go to another state to get an education. So that meant that I couldn't get any of their money because I was going anyway but I decided that if they are paying me to go to a, a university better than the University of Alabama, better than Louisiana State University and they're going to pay me then I'm going to uh, accept it because I'm oh, going oh, oh, anyway. Hold on,
0: you saying that
1: uh West
0: you Com- Com- West council University was a much better edu- school of education than yeah. LSU or University uh, of Alabama? Uh, yeah,
1: you you can read the literature and see the rank of the universities uh the university of wisconsin was ranked higher than any uh, institution of higher education in the south period so why would you pay someone to go to a a university that's higher ranked in quality to keep them from going to a, a university that was at an inferior rank. And can you imagine? Wh- what is the logic behind that? So, the state of Louisiana paid for you to go to a better school, but <laughs> well, that's pretty good, though. Yeah. Well, they had discontinued that at the time. I was in Alabama, remember, okay. at that time. But Louisiana and Alabama, all the southern states had the same policy. They had just discontinued it in 1966 because that was token de facto desegregation at the university of alabama and also louisiana state university as well so i i I came in just as the policy was changed and they had discontinued this so i was denied uh the 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 money to pay for my tuition to go to out of state however i was going to the university of wisconsin anyway because I had gotten admitted. I had gotten uh, a scholarship. And and so why would I wanna go to Louisiana uh, or Alabama school in those, states, even if I was admitted, when I could go to a better school? And didn't have to deal with all of the issues dealing with, with desegregation, because just because they had desegregated didn't mean that there were not issues. And, and in my book, which is called uh, a view from the inside. Uh, the, the, the desegregation laws had passed, but the environment was not desegregated. So you still had to go through the humiliation and the um, discrimination even after you were, um, after the laws had been changed. So the environment had not been changed. So anyway, I went to the University of Wisconsin. Had a wonderful experience there. My wife went. Two of my children were born in Wisconsin, so they are uh, uh, natives of Wisconsin. I always tease them about that. You know, you were not born in Louisiana. You were born in Wisconsin. <laughs> in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, start acting like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, one of my sons was born in in Baton Rouge the first two were born in Madison Wisconsin so anyway that was another revelation and another experience outside of the South in a Midwestern state and Wisconsin was not totally liberated itself you know because you still got white uh, migration up there and you still got biases and prejudices there too and there was very few of us up there at the yeah, time. Yeah, and there was very few blacks up there to protest, anything, so, uh, 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 you know, but the environment was less hostile than in the South, and they did not have ongoing hostile situations where you had to fight on a daily basis like you did if you went to the University of Alabama, where people were spitting on you and cursing you and calling you. Uh, derogatory name, are at Louisiana State University for that matter. So uh, it, it, w- it was another revelation and experience. And so all of these environments taught me things that I had not known before. Now, so,
0: now what did you study
1: with uh, your, your, master- uh, uh, your PhD in? Uh, sociology. Rural Sociology. And so I made the transition from. An agriculture science. To a people science. Because I discovered. That I had interest. And skills. In the the people science. Called a human science. Like sociology. As opposed to animal science. Where I worked with. uh, Animals. Swine. Poultry. Livestock. And the like. Although I, I still have a a great affinity for that area, you know, and still have great knowledge of it. if I had to survive, I could go on a farm and farm today. But I decided to shift to sociology and and I completed my PhD degree in 1973, uh, December 1973 at the University of Wisconsin. So now, uh, the question was, do I stay in Wisconsin or do I come back to Louisiana or go someplace else? Because I could have gone west to California, stayed in the Midwest in Wisconsin, and I was offered a position at the University of Wisconsin, which I was flattered by, or seek employment back in the South.
0: Well Doc, what we're gonna do right now is that we gonna save all this great information and knowledge and insight for another day. Because right now you have given us so much to hold on to and we wanna hold on to those other thoughts that we can we gonna share a little bit later. So once again we wanna welcome you to Count Time Podcast for participating, being a part of this uh our podcast and in our relationship friendship, and for you to share your heart and uh your insight with with count time,
1: well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the the dialogue and the conversation and and um and the experience of having to uh, tell part of my history and and the meaning of it to me and my family and community and so I look forward to doing the next one. We can go inside LSU on the next one. Oh, that's where we going. That's where we headed. (laughs) Where we going? And inside the Baton Rouge community, and talk about not only the LSU experience but the Baton Rouge experience because I lived in Baton Rouge although I worked at at Louisiana State University and the the Southern University. Connection too. I have connections with, with uh, Southern University. And Jackson State University. And Jackson so State we, University. we got a lot
0: more we're gonna talk about. Right? So we're looking uh, forward to the next segment. Thank I you. Look forward to it. Thank you, Doc. You are thank it. you. Man can at the hand. Man can at the feet. But only you can at the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.